This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Dr. Ravi Koparapu. Dr. Ravi Koparapu is a planetary scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. His research interests are in extrasolar planet habitability, atmosphere modeling and characterization, as well as identifying technosignatures and biosignatures. He is the co-chair of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics UAP study. Remember to subscribe to Event Horizon so you never miss an episode. Dr. Ravi Kaparapu, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Doctor, one of your specializations is in liquid water in the universe, the solvent of life, the very beginning of it all. With exoplanets, there seems to be no reason to suspect that Earth is in any way unique with its liquid water oceans. What are the prospects right now of liquid water being found on exoplanets? Can we actually do that? Can we infer at this point and say that liquid water is common in the universe on planetary surfaces? Yes, I think uh, it's uh, quite possible for us to detect liquid water on exoplanets. And the reason for that is because one of the few things that we have found uh, and most important profound things that we have found in the last few years is that there are more planets outside our solar system than within our solar system. So far, we know more than 5,000 exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars. And water seems to be one of the most common compound that could form on several of these planets just based on chemistry and physics. Oxygen is one of the most abundant elements, and hydrogen is, of course, the most abundant element in the universe, right? So water seems to be a more favorable compound to form. And uh, with uh, upcoming telescopes, there is a way, definitely a way for us to detect liquid water and on the surface of these planets. Now, what's the profile look like? Now, you need temperature for liquid water within the habitable zones of suitable stars. But what about pressure, atmospheric pressure and things like that? What are there other peripherals are there that define whether liquid water can exist on a planetary surface? That is an excellent question, actually. So temperature is not the only parameter that you would want to have. As you just mentioned, pressure is also important. For example, if you take a cup of water and keep it on Mars right now, it might boil away even though temperature is pretty cold over there, just because atmospheric pressure is not enough for water to stay in a liquid form. So we, different kinds of exoplanets have different kinds of pressure and temperature regimes that could make water, liquid water to be within the uh, parameter region where it is possible to stay in the liquid form. We have uh, liquid water under the subsur subsurface of some of the moons, Jovian moons uh, in our solar system. Liquid water could also exist on different chemical conditions. So for example, we don't need to have nitrogen and uh, oxygen atmosphere to have liquid water. We could have hydrogen, for example, under sufficient pressures, you could have you could create a liquid water on the surface of a planet if it has only hydrogen and some other carbon dioxide or something like that. So there, yeah. So we have a very good example of a planet with liquid water oceans. We also have oceans we strongly suspect locked underneath the shells of ice and moons like Enceladus and Europa. But we also have weird ones. We also have Titan with liquid hydrocarbons. So can it be possible, do you think, chemically speaking, for alternate solvents, for example, ammonia or uh, liquid hydrocarbons, could life of some sort 
presumably microbial arise in those liquids? It is certainly possible. We need to know the chemistry. So we need to, if we are trying to postulate for a different kinds of life, we need to come up with a life cycle and a metabolic metabolism activity that uh, that life, particular life, could uh, take and undergo through its life cycle. So we focus mostly on water and water-based life because water is a a solvent, a polar molecule, right? It can form chemical bonds easily with other molecules. And so for the kind of life that we see on Earth, it's easy to form these chemical bonds and multiply and form you know, complex organisms. And that's one of the reasons why we mostly focus on liquid water or water-based life. If we are proposing for life that is looks different, as you just mentioned with some other chemical compounds, we also need to come up with the biochemistry that can support that kind of life. It's not just enough for us to say, okay, there could be life based on these chemical compounds, but if this life is using these chemical compounds, here is, the, here is how it can go through a life cycle, a biochem- its biochemistry. And so if we can come up with a complete theory of that, then yes, it is possible to have a different kind of life not based on uh, water solvent. Now, we come up to an interesting situation with the question of microbial life in the universe, simple life. And that is we look far and near. We, we look at Mars. We look at anything that looks like it could host microbial life, a second abiogenesis in the solar system. And we have no problem with that. You know, look for it. Send probes. But also we have the idea of looking for biosignatures and exoplanets, some evidence of life far away. This stands in stark contrast to how we view technosignatures, and we'll get to that in a bit, and the UAP phenomenon, where there is a hesitancy to look close, as opposed to looking distantly for radio signals in SETI. But back to microbial life in the solar system, if if it happened here, which we stand as an example, and we have some indicators maybe that there might be microbial life in the atmosphere of Venus or on uh, subsurface Mars. But looking out, what do you think the best biosignature gases that we could detect would be for an exoplanet that would lead us to conclude that there's probably a biosphere present on there? So this is this is this is a really great question because uh, this is literally what we have been doing right now uh, and we'll keep doing if we want to discover life on exoplanets. For example, if we want to find there is not a single biosignature gas or a combination of gases. The reason for that is if you look at Earth's history, we have several different biosignature molecules that could indicate the life, indicate that there was life on Earth. And, and the reason why I'm pointing to life, uh, Earth's history is because that is the only planet we have, a template we have for uh, life that we know of. And so if, if we look for life two billion years ago, at that time, there was no oxygen. It was only carbon dioxide and methane dominated atmosphere, along with nitrogen, of course. Nitrogen was always present uh, throughout our Earth's history. And that, if you, if you look at uh, an exoplanet like Earth, that was 2.7 billion years ago with modern telescopes, you would find carbon dioxide and methane, and that's a biosignature. And there is also, if you look at the present Earth's atmosphere, you would find uh, oxygen, methane, water vapors, carbon dioxide, and so on. Th- those are also a combination of uh, biosignature gases. So th- when we detect these kind of gases on an exoplanet, all we can say is that this is a good indication of, an, of a planet with life on it. But we cannot confirm that that is indeed coming from life because there is always a possibility that uh, there is a biotic, biological mechanism or abiotic mechanism that can produce all these combination of gases together. And the way we want to look at it is it's not just enough to detect these gases. We also want to know at what levels these gases are being emitted from the surface of a planet so that it is consistent with biology. And so when, if, you, if you ask me what are the biosignature gases, I would say for the present Earth, it would be oxygen, methane combination and ozone combination because they should not be existing together. But that's just not enough. We need to also find uh, at what levels they are being emitted. And if you are asking for Earth past history, uh, you would look for carbon dioxide, methane and so on for our biosignature gases. 
so there is no one single instance where we could say that's life. Rather, we need a profile and we need to look for disequilibriums and things like that. But it is in principle possible to conclude, come to a conclusion based on the observations of an exoplanet atmosphere that there is a biosphere there. So the profile would give us a reasonable way to conclude that's the case then, right? Right. The context is important. Even if we discover these gases, we need to understand the environmental context this planet exists around the star. We need to know more about the star. We need to know about the planet size, mass, and what uh, star's environment, radiation environment, this planet exists. And then if we find these gases, these are all circumstantial evidence to build up our case for and build confidence in our detection that, oh, yes, this planet uh, looks like very likely a habitable planet, an inhabited planet, not just habitable. There's a difference. Or as it were, was inhabited. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> now, what of planetary size? So we talk about things like mini Neptunes and super Earths and things like that, which I know that you study. Is there an upper limit for a terrestrial planet to support life? In other words, can a, an exoplanet be too large for life? There comes a point where there would be, uh, when as the planet size grows, it becomes extremely high pressure environment. And from our understanding of how life behaves, extreme pressures and extreme conditions may not be conducive to the kind of life that we want, we are looking for. Of course, people then will point to, oh, how about hydrothermal vents? You know, there are uh, toxic environments and uh, hot uh, situations, right? Well, how do we know about hydrothermal uh, environments? Because we actually went there and we started looking. We physically went there. We were able to go there. We had that luxury. But for exoplanets, we don't have that luxury to go there and then dig some place and then find extreme environment situations. So we have to look only for those kind of environments where we think life could exist. And then someone can say, okay, then you might be missing many possible locations for life. That's true. We will never be able to find all possible regions and conditions where life could exist. And the first life that we might be, the first kind of life we might be able to detect are those conditions where it's uh, more easier for life to sustain than in the extreme conditions. Now, back to a point on water. So we have an indicator with our own star system of liquid water off Earth. For example, it seems very compelling at this point that Mars was once a very wet world. And possibly even Venus, it's been suggested that it had its period of, of oceans as well. So... Here we have terrestrial planets that have water or had water on them. Then we have the maddening part. Many, many suspected ice shell moons. <laughs> and unfortunately, the ice shell moons of the universe are probably outside of our reach as far as being able to observe and, and learn much about other than maybe if exomoons exist or not. But this star system really has a lot of water suggesting that Planetary bodies with water, both in the form of terrestrial planets and ice shell moons, it just must be so common out there that it's, it's unbelievable. Would you concur on that? There, definitely that water is quite common, either on the surface or on under the surface of the planets. Yes, that's that's uh, that seems to be the case within our solar system at least. Do you think it can go the opposite direction and have too much water on an exoplanet? In other words, it could have an oceanic biosphere but no land, therefore probably no technological civilizations or prospects for it. Do you think that that could be a great filter and answer to the, to the great silence is that most exoplanets have too much water? So I wouldn't go that far just because that we don't know under what conditions life could develop and under what conditions technology could develop either. Okay, There might be things that are available to them that we may not have, and they might be even more conducive to life to exist. So I wouldn't dismiss away right away uh, if there is a, an ocean planet with lots of water. That would be a good habitable uh, location. And the only way to find out if it is inhabited is to actually uh, see if uh, there are any atmospheric signatures through remote observations. Now, looking for a little bit more than microbial life, let's move up to the level of plants. What is your view on the possibility of looking for things like the the vegetative red edge, do you think that we could ever establish reasonably that there's more than just microbes on an exoplanet? 
I I would really hope so. I think uh, it's certainly possible because each star has its own and en- radiation environment, and so some environments are more favorable for uh, plant kind of life, advanced life. There was even a paper by my colleague Nancy Kiang at some think about a ten fifteen years ago where she discussed about what kind of colors plants could have. on around different kinds of plants around different kinds of stars so for example around cool stars plants may look black because cool stars don't emit as much light as our sun does and so plants have to absorb any radiation any light that comes from the host star and so they have to be black because black absorbs most of the radiation anyway and so plants might be you know black in those uh, on those planets please uh, really the imagination runs wild imagining a sort of grayscale world of white volcanic rock <laughs> interspersed with black planets right. very very unearthly <laughs> now um techno signatures moving back up further we we look for techno signatures via radio signals mostly um, ever since coconi and morrison's paper and frank drake and we haven't seen anything yet does that what is your response to that i mean do you think that we just haven't looked enough to to say that that we really know anything or do you think we've looked enough to say that maybe intelligent life in the universe is rare i'm so glad you asked this question <laughs> so because i have some opinions about this first of all radio's search for techno signatures is one aspect of the whole field of techno signatures right and it was the first one that has started uh, that was started few decades ago and it's still going on it's a very strong chart it's also unambiguous uh, uh, detection of uh, technology we don't know of any natural process where we could have a radio emission from uh, coming from a natural process other than a techno- technological civilization so that's one thing that has uh, been going on there are other ways to look for other things we can look for at techno signatures we can think about that uh, we can talk about it later the fact that we haven't found them yet uh, i think it's more related to a time question and also what we are searching for i'll give you an example if you go to new york and then stand near a you know bus stand and stay there for 2 seconds and come back and tell me that hey, okay i stood there for 2 seconds and then there was no bus or so new york doesn't have any buses at all okay that's because we you haven't waited long enough and that's probably one of the things that i think is why we weren't able to find uh, any uh, yet radio communication signals or radio contact with the uh, civilizations but that also assumes we can re- recognize a bus which means we can uh, we are assuming that we are so intelligent that we will be able to recognize any kind of radio emission coming from space that is that's also one assumption right there are other ways for us to even look for techno signatures these we don't have to wait for the technologically advanced civilizations to uh, send signal to us imagine this right now we are building telescopes to look for atmospheric techno signatures pollution on the planets or city lights on planets then this is actually a research work going on we published papers on this and we are trying to see how future telescopes can look for these city lights look for pollution if we can think about those kind of things i'm sure the any advanced legend has already done that and so they we they don't have to wait for our radio communications to reach them they'll just build a telescope and look at us and same thing we can do too and so the the re, the, the the reason why your your question about why we haven't found any is one probably because we haven't uh, looked long enough to we are just about to start looking for other kinds of techno signatures so we need some more time for that and three uh, it assumes that we can recognize a techno signature when we see one now i love that sentiment that maybe you have to wait longer than 5 minutes for the bus in regards to profiles again maybe that's the approach we need is a multi-pronged search for more techno signatures than just radio and do it for a longer duration Do you think that it's 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 likely that had we gotten a signal we may very well have missed it before now and what would an ideal search for techno signatures as a profile be in in your view I think uh, it should be 
for if you want to detect a techno signature, we should be looking at all wavelengths, at all the whole spectrum of techno signatures. We should look for anomalies, not just um, not just the ideas we have. Yes, of course, you know some of the things I mentioned about pollution, city lights, radio signals, even laser pulse emissions. Uh, we were looking. These are all the things that we can think of that a potential civilization could do because that's what we are thinking that we could do, right? But then there could be also things that we do not know, the unknown unknowns. Those are called anomalies. And so I, 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 this is always I, you know, when we talk, when I talk with my colleagues, I say that we should, we should not only look for the things we know, we should also look for things that don't fit into the data, that look different, that they look anomalous in the data and try to investigate those things. That is the only way we will find new signs. That's the only way we can probably find uh, fundamental discoveries. I think the delightful thing here is that we are starting to see such anomalies. Um, examples would be KICA 462.852 or Shabilsky star, just objects that, that just hint that there maybe there's something there, but maybe there's also, of course, you have to exhaust all of the natural explanations first to get there, and we haven't been able to do that. But we are starting to see anomalies. And I think that with the instrumentations coming online, especially with things like the, the Vera Rubin Observatory coming, I think we're going to see a lot of those. Do you anticipate that we are entering a great age of anomalies where we're going to be talking about aliens a lot more than we used to? I think we are already there because all, any new great observatory, when it goes up, you know, when it opens its eye, we always find new phenomena. It happened with Hubble, it happened with Spitzer, it happened with every telescope that's out there, you know, whenever there was X-ray emissions or radio uh, radio telescopes. So I'm sure it's going to happen with any new technology or any new telescope when it opens up. Now, one such anomaly that we saw happened way back in 1977, the WOW signal. And the vexing thing about the WOW signal is that it looked technological and it looked like what you would expect. It was at the hydrogen line for an alien signal, or at least as we, we thought of it then, that that might be a convenient place to broadcast if you want to get the attention of others. Yet, it only ever uh, we only ever saw it once. It hasn't repeated since. And recently, it, w- it was even looked at in a very targeted way towards a sun-like star that... Um, that uh, had been identified as maybe the source of it, or had been suggested anyway. So they did a targeted search. So once again, we look for the wow signal and we see nothing. Do you think the concept of a self-contained, self-confirming radio signal in SETI is possible? In other words, can you make a single one-off radio signal, radio transmission look so weird and so unambiguous that you couldn't mistake it for anything else, even if you only saw it once, meaning it's a transient. It, you only see it once. Could we possibly confirm that with a weird enough signal? Uh, I would be hesitant with just one-off signal because the nature is clever. Okay, Nature has many, many ways of making things happen. And just because we have eliminated all our own understanding of natural phenomena doesn't mean that nature can doesn't produce that. And so if we have a one-off phenomena and, I, and, and, and if we are quite confident on it, I would not rush and claim that this is certainly coming from a non-natural sources. I would phrase it in a way that, uh, okay, we looked at it and we have eliminated all natural uh, generation phenomena for this kind of uh, event that we have detected. And that's where I would stop. I would not go further than that, saying that it could be coming from where, whatever. I would say we have eliminated all the natural sources that we could think about, and that's about that. But that's something. That's something. It's, it's, It's a step in the right direction. Yes. Now, say we did get a repeating signal, something that we can really take a good look at and determine that it is of alien origin. Well, there, there's that question answered, but naturally people are going to ask, well, what's the signal say? And I, to this, I usually respond, well, I don't know, it may be like radar and there may be nothing there, you know, no information content. Do you think if we got a complex alien signal that repeated that we could nail down to an alien civilization, do you think we could ever decode the transmission or is that forever out of our reach? I think it's probably it's probably possible that we may be, never be able to decode it. 
But I think uh, given enough time and enough minds, I, we are a clever species. We are here with an advanced technology. We might at least make headway into uh, answering at least a part of that uh, puzzle that they've uh, from that from that signal. Uh, we may not be entirely able to solve it, but then if it's a repeating phenomena, we are good at repeating, uh, looking at patterns. So I think uh, there's a good chance we may be able to decode it. Now, speaking of patterns, we'll get into that in a bit regarding the UAP phenomena because I have some questions about um, patterns and that stuff. But before we get there, if we get a signal from a distance, we see an alien civilization and we look at it and say it's 10 light years away. Does that tell us something about the distribution of civilizations in the galaxy? Meaning that if there's one that close, then there are probably a whole lot of them out there, right? Absolutely. I think I'll be stunned if we find something nearby and we have missed it uh, all these years. But that also assumes, like I said before, we would be able to detect something uh, and and we, we know all sorts of signals that the civilization might be emitting and we were we are able to recognize those kind of signals and so i would be quite happy and also quite uh, surprised if we find anything nearby an advanced civilization nearby now do you think the question of are we alone can be answered within within a reasonable amount of time our lifetimes for example that maybe the abiogenesis researchers will find that abiogenesis was, was easier than we thought or something like that therefore Life must be ubiquitous in the universe. Or we see another uh, exoplanet, a, a, a habitable, you know, within the habitable zone of a star, we see an exoplanet that's showing biosignatures. Does that tell us, uh, does the, the very first confirmation of extraterrestrial life, not of an origin on Earth, does that tell us immediately that the universe teems with life and that it is everywhere, no matter how far distant the detection is? I think that's a good sign because, uh, and, and I believe that, uh, at least I, from my perspective, that is a really good indicator that we would be we are we would be able to find more sites for this uh, uh, biogenesis on other planets, uh, if we, even if we discover one of them, and that's a good sign. What do you think about the funding? Do you think the detection of a, a candidate biosphere on an exoplanet will? cause researchers and funding to just dramatically increase, thus increasing our chances of finding a third example? So more than funding, I would say the amount of interest from everyone, even from my mom, for example, or from anyone or relative would be tremendous. I mean, imagine this is one of the most fundamental discoveries in humans, in our, you know, history of humans. Who wouldn't be interested in this? Like you found life on a world that is not on Earth, that's from another planet. And so there would be tremendous interest in this. And I would think that eventually that interest will go promote more and more investigations and uh, more and more interest from hopefully from our leaders. Do you think the detection of alien life in whatever form would serve to unite yeah. the species. In other words, we suddenly become the humans from Earth as opposed to nation states and things like that. Do you think that the discovery of alien life would have a positive effect on human civilization? I think it will certainly give a perspective on us that, okay, look, we are all from Earth. We are all in this together. We found, when we say we, the humans on Earth found life on other world. So we can, if we, and that means that we are, we are able to have that kind of technology. If we can come together, we can make even more fundamental discoveries. And so I think that is, that would be a great and profound discovery if it, from all perspectives, even for general public, uh, to have that when we find life on other planets. I think the, I think the best, in the best case scenario, what would really, I could die very happy is if we saw some mega engineering project like a, you know, a, a Niven ring or something like that out there that aliens have constructed because it means that you don't automatically go extinct and you can produce amazing planetary scale technologies. And to me, that would suggest, you know, maybe we can really have a positive future and build something like that someday. Do you, do you have a similar um, sort of feeling regarding that? Yes. When we see an, another advanced technology, uh, a civilization, or when we discover one, 
that gives confidence, that gives some sort of comfort for us that, okay, we can survive our own immaturity or our evolution into a new technological civilization. And, and that's, that confidence is really, really important because we will have that kind of a, a surety that we can be part of several technological civilizations out there and we can survive uh, our own misfortunes. Now, say we find it. We find we get a radio signal and it turns out to be somebody radaring asteroids in their star system or something like that. They have their own Arecibo telescope, which we unfortunately no longer do. So we see that. Do we practice Medi and try to contact them, in your view? I don't think it matters, and I'll give you the reason why, even if we contact them or not. If they have a technology to send radio communications to Earth, is I think that's what you're asking, which means that they know where Earth is located, which means they probably had or had or have similar kind of Earth-level technology because we also have radio communication here, right? Well, if they have similar kind of technology, they must have built telescopes to look at our planet already so they know where we, we exist here. They know that Earth has biological life. They will also know that Earth has technological life. So whether we do METI or not becomes irrelevant at that point because they already know. Probably that's the, one of the reasons why they sent the signal in the first place because they found using their telescopes that uh, there is a habitable planet with the biology and technology. Oh, let's try to send a radio communication to them. This is what we would do, right? And that's what they would do too. So at that point, METI, when we, whether we do or not, becomes you know, irrelevant, in my opinion. You know, that's an interesting thought because say we found a biosphere in an exoplanet that just says there's, there's some life there. Mm-hmm. Would we immediately respond by saying, Asking ourselves the question globally, should we start beaming a radio, a regular radio signal towards it? If there isn't a civilization there, it doesn't matter because we may not be able to know. But should we engage in things like that? When we find exoplanets, should we just start beaming a hello signal and, and maintaining it? I think from from my perspective, it it wouldn't hurt. If, if, you, if we find only biology on that planet and if we are sending radio signals, first of all, that's fine. I, from my perspective, it doesn't matter. And if there is a technological civilization, we find one. And, and, they, and if we are able to discover a technological civilization on an exoplanet, again, if we do METI, the sending signals or not, is irrelevant. Because if they have a technology, they must have already found us. It's like... I'll give you an example. It's like a, a small kid trying to hide by closing their eyes, thinking that they are hiding. It's not, it's not going to happen, right? So it's just, we, we are already discovered. I think, the, I think the ultimate irony would be as if we did Medi and then we get a signal back essentially telling us to be quiet. They're trying to do radio astronomy. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Chances. Okay, so the galaxy is big, 100,000 light years across. So... When we do SETI, are we necessarily are we necessarily confined to the close? Meaning that if there's a civilization, a super civilization across the galaxy, halfway across it, it's just simply too far unless we have a radio telescope the size of Chicago to ever have any hope of detecting. So are we constrained in what we can look for as far as technosignatures? Do we necessarily have to look close or is there a chance that we could see something far away? So with radio communications, we can scan much larger part of the galaxy than with any kind of other kind of technosignature searches, just because radio communications can travel much further out into the galaxy. So from that point of view, yes, we can potentially look at larger distances with radio. But for if we are using telescopes, uh, normal you know, optical telescopes, the ones that we use, we might be able to look only within our solar neighborhood, within like few tens of light years around the sun. Uh, for habitable and inhabited uh, planets. Now, moving closer to home, we saw a very strange object, Oumuamua, and it it was suggested, it was tossed out there, that perhaps this thing might have been a piece of alien technology. I personally believe that it was a weird rock. I'm not ready to go alien yet, but I appreciate that the the idea was just unabashedly tossed out there. Do you? What is your thoughts on that object? Do you think that by searching interstellar objects and that the 
the fact that the very first one we saw was weird <laughs> is it bodes well for searching for techno signatures within the solar system, alien flotsam flying through the solar system. So I'm glad you asked this question because just last week I was at a conference. I, I, I organized a conference called Exoplanets in Our Backyard. And then one of the speaker, uh, Steve Desch from uh, Arizona State University, presented his work on the interstellar object Oumuamua. And I got from Steve presented a really nice summary of the current status on the Oumuamua. And it's a uh, from my perspective as a scientist, it's a pretty convincing result that is very likely a piece of a Pluto-like planet from another star system based on the evidence that they have. Uh, but that gives us... Uh, the, the, the whole process of uh, Oumuamua and its discovery and the corresponding you know, controversy or shows us the scientific process of something that is anomalous. So it, this is how a scientific process works when you're trying to solve an anomaly collect more data, make, you know, provide your hypothesis, rule out your hypothesis if the data is not supporting it, and then focus on the things that are your, uh, you know, the hypothesis is supporting. And this is where, where we are right now with Oumuamua. It's a classic, classic scientific process uh, uh, in action when, uh, from, for this uh, particular uh, event. Oh, absolutely. I've been watching the paper since its discovery, and it's just been amazing to watch the scientific process work because there just were so many different hypotheses put out there, hydrogen icebergs and all this sort of thing. Here's my question about the whole thing is that, okay, so we start doing all-sky surveys with the LSST. We should see a population of Oumuamua's. We should see like objects. Do you think this becomes a wow signal if we don't? That is an interesting uh, idea. That's that is certainly the case. But then, wow signal, we didn't have enough data for that. Uh, in Oumuamua case as well, we didn't have enough data. But then we have more than enough, a little bit more than enough data to kind of conclude that, uh, at least to reach a, a, a consensus, I would say, that it is most likely a natural part of, a, a natural. it's a piece of a planet or an asteroid that uh, came from another star system. Um with with the wow signal, we just didn't have that kind of uh, enough data to make even a prediction where it came from. Like lack of data. Now, we're getting better at data collection, however, and with these all sky surveys and everything, we can begin to look for techno signatures in the solar system. Do you think that that's a viable place to, to look? Do you think it's that just as likely that there might be something out in the solar system, a von Neumann probe or something, versus a distant radio signal? Do you think that the radio signals are, are the better chance or any other uh, distant techno signature? Or do we stand a really good chance maybe of finding something in our own star system? So within our, so there is actually a, within the techno signature subfield, uh, the study of solar system techno signatures. We even wrote a white paper recently on uh, uh, looking for techno signatures within our solar system, uh, led by my colleague Jacob Hagmishra. Uh, and for to, to, to see which one is likely, I would, you know, I would probably look for both. And, and I think uh, we have more in terms of telescope and time and uh, resource investment in the radio kind of techno signatures because that has been more popular and has been going on for several decades. I am not entirely sure if we have the same kind of resources and time we have put in to look for probes within our solar system. And so to, to, to answer directly uh, your question, if you ask me right now, uh, which one has a more likely chance, I would probably say because of the kind of investment in resources, radio technologies compared to the solar system probe uh, searches. But if we put more efforts in looking for uh, solar system probes, we might be able to increase that likelihood. Now, if you have a probe in the solar system of alien origin, say a scenario, for example, a, a passing star system in the past, they, they came close and they're like, well, that's that an interesting uh, exoplanet with life on it. We'll, we'll station a probe here, a self-repairing probe that can just sit here and, and monitor them indefinitely. And that solves the problem of distance because the sun does pass by other star systems. So maybe more has been made of the distance problem than is actually there. In other words, people have always said there can't be an alien presence in the solar system because of the distances are just too great. Do you think that that really is not quite the case? Within, there are proposals, at least for within the solar neighborhood, 
there are proposals for how we can uh, you know how a technological civilizations can potentially develop technology that could cross between the interstellar space so that if depending on the level of technology that we can think about i think at least for the nearby stars given enough time there is certainly a possibility that we could cross uh, the distances between them and 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 imagine the reason why i'm saying this is because 100 years ago if you ask uh, someone i think there was even an article somewhere i read if you ask what is the most advanced technology at the time and you would say oh you know that would be uh, some kind of horse carts with faster or maybe multiple horses or you could have some sort of wings to your buggies or something uh, so those kind of technologies that we can imagine right now so the imagination of the uh, uh, of higher level traveling technology changes with the, with every generation so right now we think about how to cross uh, the interstellar spaces based on the kind of technology we have i'm sure if we if you ask the same question 100 years from now and if you're having this interview then i would say that you know they might say oh yeah you know it's certainly possible so in other words we have a paradigm in which we think but in the past every human that's ever lived had a paradigm and up until now they ended up generally being wrong <laughs> and there was more yes. to the story than than what they had thought right we are limited by the imagination of that time so let's uh let's say if we have if it's a possibility to look for techno signatures within the solar system chances are if they're in the solar system they're here as in in our atmosphere with us but there's always been at least to my eyes a bias against the study of UAP or the UFO phenomenon whatever you want to call it a bias against science actually looking into that and you had mentioned in a recent talk a paper by Dr. James McDonald from 1969 now i read this paper and that paper to me could have been written yesterday because it still seems to reflect the taboo on mentioning the word ufo Do you think that that it's time that we got rid of that taboo and we took a serious scientific look and inquiry into the UFO phenomenon? I the yes, I think uh, first of all, I'm a proponent of a scientific approach to this issue. And I any unknown phenomena needs to be approached with a scientific process. So there is absolutely no question that uh we should do it a scientific methodology for this to understand this phenomenon. Now where's it start? Where do we start in a scientific probe of UAP? If you were designing an instrument to look into these aerial phenomena, where would you start? I mean, what what sort of data set do you want? I would not uh I would not do anything different than what I would be doing already if depending on my skill set. If I'm an engineer, I know and if i'm a scientist if i'm and if i have a colleague who is a scientist what i would do is i will first collect a multidisciplinary team of scientists who would be able to look at this phenomena uh, so we need to look at all optical and all uh, spectral bands in optical infrared uh, spectra and so on we need to know we need to have meteorologists because these are happening within our atmosphere we need to have engineers we need to have aerospace uh, experts and we need to have scientists and physicists uh, who would be able to understand and analyze the data and we need data analysis people we need to first collect data before we we uh, we do the analysis do you think that the accounts that people report of uap give a starting point do they tell you can you look for patterns and can you determine if there's any particular points on earth that is where you need to look i don't know enough about that to say anything uh, just because i i don't know where this phenomena exactly are happening but uh, i would say that that would be a good starting point but that would not be an evidence of anything but that would be a good starting point to start a scientific investigation now dr mcdonald who's been gone for many decades suffered heavily for his interest in uap and was basically publicly discredited and berated from several points including a senator and a very prominent skeptic and as a scientist reading Dr. McDonald's paper what do you think of his work do you find that paper a compelling reason as he was trying to present to first scientists to look into UAP and there will be a link to this paper in the description below so everybody can read it 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I, I absolutely think that everybody who is interested in understanding the scientific phenomena, uh, scientific process of understanding the UAP phenomena should read uh, Dr. McDonald's uh, Science in Default. When I first read that, I thought, I felt like I was reading a technical document, a scientific technical document, because this is how we write our papers. So, so when the, that paper provided a template for uh, for me at least to see, okay, if uh, someone is doing a scientific investigation of UAP, these are the kind of things that one should follow. These are the things that one should do based on this science in default document. What I found interesting about that particular paper was the cases he detailed weren't just multiple cases of visual sightings. There was radar. And that means that whatever this is, it interacts electromagnetically with the electromagnetic spectrum, which means that it should be measurable, right? So there's something here that we can sink our teeth into, and we have a good chance of actually collecting actionable data on it. Can you make the case to other scientists that that we have that with this? So when I talk with my colleagues, about this phenomena, I mentioned that these some of these uh, things have been recorded on multiple instruments, and also by 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 uh, the people uh, who uh, the pilots who have been doing these kind of measurements for a while now, uh, because that's what in kind of instruments they use for their uh, for their flying experience, right, or for their training. I I think this is the right way to uh, when. I also tell my colleagues that when you are in doubt, when you have a question about something, go directly to the source so that you will get the most accurate information to at least make a some sort of a judgment, a wise judgment that, okay, there is something over there. And so that is how I started with, I went directly to the sources, the pilots, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Ryan Graves, and we talked about it. And then, you know, then I then I started reading Dr. McDonald's papers, and that's when I thought there, there is definitely a scientific investigation needed here to, uh, to understand this phenomenon. Now, do we run a danger of putting our own human biases on the phenomenon? In other words, is it possible that since we're seeing something, that it might actually be outside of our paradigm? It, and what I'm getting at here is the work of another astronomer, J. Allen Hynek and also information scientist Dr. Jacques Vallée, that maybe what we're seeing is weirder than aliens and that maybe we should be open to the possibility that there's areas of science that we know we don't understand and that maybe this phenomenon might be related to that as opposed to proper aliens. Do you think that we need to be open to that? Or can we say, no, this is, there's something here, but it's, it's, it's more likely to be aliens, which is that ultimately what McDonald concluded was that the alien hypothesis was the least worst one. Could we end up in that boat and actually have data on UAP and still not know what they are? It is quite possible, but I would first focus on collecting the data before we go into any sort of uh, speculative hypothesis, because this is how I'm trained as a scientist, right? So when, when I, when, before I could make any kind of a opinion, opinion, I want to know, am I being fooled by the data? Am I, being, am I collecting the whole data? Am I getting the whole picture of the phenomena? And so, so once I have the data in my hand, uh, well, not when I say my hand, in the scientist's hand, uh, then I would be able to make some sort of a, a guidance or judgment regarding which way or which hypothesis is being favored uh, more after I've done the analysis. 
Now, what what is your opinion on um, Ryan Graves' sighting, his report? Now, I personally believe him, and I also believe uh, David Fravor and the pilots from the Nimitz and all that. When the pilots are telling me something, I, I tend to take note because they're trained observers. And like a lot of times, at least the Navy says, they have multiple instrument data on it. They just can't show it to us for national security purposes. So this, to me, points that we have an eminently um, good chance of of trying to identify the UAP phenomenon. Are you convinced, and I'll ask this point blank, are you convinced that UAP exist? I think that's no longer a question. I, I, I have to agree there. I can't ignore it anymore. <laughs> I can't ignore the option. I, we have moved that beyond that point. Yeah, we are. And while well, we have government saying that there's something to it. The question is, is what worries me is if we can't pin it on aliens. <laughs> so I wouldn't bring up aliens now with the UAPs only because we don't know what they are. They are unidentified by their very nature. Yep. Exactly. Yep. But say they are. <laughs> is that a little bit of a different situation than detecting a distant radio signal that you finally finally find out there is a an alien civilization more advanced than you are sitting in your atmosphere with you? Does that keep you up at night? Because it does me. I think if we find, so I'm going to talk this from the technosignature standpoint. If we find a, because we always look for, we, this is a this is an active research problem in the technosignature field, uh, to look for probes within our solar system, look for probes uh, uh, if for uh, from other civilizations. Uh, we are already looking for it. So for me, it will not be an entirely a surprising thing, but, but here is where I would differ. I would, not a surprising thing, but would be a, a completely uh, what would call. That's when I would probably jump up and uh, be happy. I would be like the guy from the Twilight Zone episode um, to serve man running around yelling it's a cookbook. I, I admit it. <laughs> um, but the uh, just the possibility, though, is very intriguing. Now, how did you come into contact with uh, Mr. Graves? So this was... Last year, I think I was invited uh, to give a talk on uh, UAP phenomena at uh, American Institute, uh, AIAA, and they were having an aviation forum uh, in in August, I believe. And uh, I was asked to give a talk over there, and then Ryan was one of, uh, oh, they also asked Ryan at that point, and then that's how we met first time. Now, free fall, and that's something that, uh, that you presented at, I believe, the AIAA. The behavior of some of the observed objects and freefall. Give us an overview of that point that you made. So I just derived some equations and tried to estimate the amount of freefall time that an object would take within the Earth's gravity gravitational field, uh, and and try to compare that with the reported observations of uh, some of these UAP objects that they have. Uh, observed, uh, pilots have observed, at least the reported ones. And and try to compare. And my point was to say that, okay, if we use the known, whatever we know about uh, the free fall uh, of an object in within the Earth's atmosphere, using the drag equations, using the Earth's gravitational field, how much time would it take for the object to fall from certain height to the sea level or something? And then try to compare that time scale with the amount of time that uh, these uh, reported objects were uh, uh, performing. And that didn't seem to be consistent. And that's what I reported in that uh, it's publicly available. So you can see that talk. Now, the uh, breaking the laws of physics is something that a lot of UAP sightings seem to be doing. But I also I wonder about something here. Phenomena of light spoofing something that's not there. Light can appear to break uh, the laws of physics, it's, you know, just like a light beam, you know, passing by can do it. It can actually break the speed of light, but that's because it isn't physically really there. It's just sort of a moving boundary. So my question is, is may, might we be seeing spoofing of some sort based on light? And this is all some experiment by um, another nation state. It is completely possible. And it is completely possible for some phenomena, but to explain, to use that reasoning for every every UAP phenomena, I, that would be a stretch of imagination, I would say. Do you anticipate that as we gather data 
on UAP. And there are a number of projects doing this, including NASA and the Galileo Project and the federal government, you know, the Pentagon. With all of these collections of data, is it is it very likely you think that we're going to find a mixed bag of um, explanations or lack of explanations thereof? I think uh, at this point, at least I'm, I'll be happy that at least we have a bag because there wasn't even a bag before, right? And so now we have at least data. When you say a mixed bag, it's a mixed bag of collection of data points. And, and that's good. Even if we can't figure it out immediately, we, we have some good algorithms like machine learning organic, uh, algorithms, you know, AI, for example, we can use them to understand this data better. So at least I'm happy that there's going to be a bag of things. That's something that, that we didn't have before is all of the, you know, the AI and machine learning and everything else that we have that we can look at data sets with. In other words, we, we don't have to look at thousands of pictures of bugs and birds to spot the UAP. And we can actually reduce this down to a, a workable data set. Do you think that's actually been a factor in the, the reluctance of science to look into the UAP phenomena? Because how you have to collect data, physical data beyond personal accounts at one time may have just been too hard. So it's just too hard to look at the sky for a long enough period to see anything. That's right. Uh, so witness accounts can be good for law and order, but not for science, right? So we need actual hard collecting data. And so right now we have more tools. We have more techniques, anal analysis techniques. We use these uh, machine learning algorithms in our own science uh, everyday work as well. And so I'm, uh, I, I'm quite encouraged uh, that uh, we now have the capability to do this kind of analysis and have the data collection methods. Do you think before this point, it would have been basically impossible, though, to study UAP in a way that we could actually write scientific papers and publish them in respectable journals? Do you think that we just up until this point did not have that capability? I wouldn't say it is, would be impossible. I would just say that we are now paying more attention to it then more minds, more ideas, more analysis. That's, that's, that's why we are here right now. Now, the, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronomics, or Astronautics, I believe, the AIAA, is something you are involved in and looking into a probe in itself. What does that look like? So I can talk about only the community of interest, and uh, I would uh, I would also recommend you to talk with uh, Ryan at some point because he's the chair of this uh, committee. Uh, perhaps you already did. Uh, my involvement with the uh, AIA UAP study is uh, I'm a co-chair. I'm the co-chair for uh, this uh, community. It's called Community of Interest, uh, where we have, uh, after my uh, presentation last year at the Aviation Forum, a couple of us together uh, uh, with the help of Ed Stanton from AIA and Neo, uh, Nijo Bram from um, uh, AIA, we formed together a group of people, a community to start providing how to bring together several people from different aviation disciplines uh, to uh, look at this uh, UAP phenomenon. Uh, one of it's the focus is more on the safety, uh, aviation safety, and we, since last one year, we have grown to several tens of members here. Uh, the, an accurate number can you can obtain from Ryan, actually. That's where we stand. Have you looked into the the other case uh, that's floating around, the Nimitz case with David Fravor and all that? And do you think that that, I mean, does that give us a, some some sort of a starting point? In other words, do we need to go near U.S. carrier groups or something like that to, to look for UAP? So we can do things even beyond that right now, even here with uh, some sort of a from different discipline scientists. So like the Galileo, Galileo Project is doing right now, right? They, they've collected a group of scientists. So that is one possible way we could uh, look for these UFO phenomena and collect the data, uh, not just necessarily from, uh, from the naval side. This is something else that, that I find odd. So if you have an alien civilization in your atmosphere with you, that must mean necessarily, right, that there are alien civilizations everywhere. Yet we look out and we see the Fermi paradox. We see the great silence. We see nothing. So is it at odds that we would be seeing something here but not out there? So you're asking if, uh, if, we, if we see something here and, well, that assumes that we know 
how to recognize an alien technology uh, everywhere, right? Right. So remember what I was mentioning, that anomalous signatures is what we want to look for. There are things that we can look for that we know. From at least for the exoplanet perspective, uh, we know what techno signatures we can look for, but that doesn't mean that we uh, can recognize uh, many of these techno signatures. Uh, the same reason can be applied for looking for alien signals, uh, alien, uh, or at least the techno signatures within our solar system. We need to look for anomalies. If something doesn't look, doesn't fit the data we collected and doesn't fit the worldview that we have, uh, we should pay more attention and collect more data before we reach uh, any uh, foundational conclusions. Now, when looking into the universe with SETI, do you think that there that we have biases? In other words, we tend to look at star systems, sun-like star systems, but maybe that's not where aliens stay. Maybe they go and, and exist near you know high energy environments like a black hole or something like that. Should we step back and take a broader view of SETI and maybe look in places where we might not have thought to look before or we had said no that's not likely but should we take a look at those places you know should we be very thorough in our search i think uh, this is a really great question because many of the uh, great discoveries some of the great discoveries have happened because people not because people were looking for them because people were doing something else and they found something else uh, something you know more profound the one of the most famous example uh, examples is exoplanets themselves. The first uh, exoplanet that was discovered, at least the confirmed one, a very robust detection was uh, around pulsar planets, planets around dead stars. We, they were not even looking for planets. They were doing pulsar observations and they just happened to find these planets around them. And so uh, when, you say, when you ask, okay, do we want to expand looking for techno signatures or to find kind of life on other worlds? We are already doing that. We are trying, we are looking almost everywhere. Of course, blind spots. For example, if someone says, oh, why, you know, there are hot Jupiters, you know, very hot planets, very close to the stars, or, you know, it's hot planets. Uh, uh, and we think, oh, how come life could exist on those kind of uh, unusual environments? Or if you see a dead planet like Mars, for example, how can there be a techno signature over there? Well, there is a techno signature on Mars right now. And there is an alien spacecraft on there too. That's ours, right? We sent rovers over there. So within our solar system, there are, there are a lot of techno signatures. And so we, if someone is looking at our solar system, they would be able to find these techno signatures uh, if they have the capability and have the detection sensitivity. So while we are looking at usual places for discovering alien civilizations, we should also keep an open eye on unusual locations uh, where we don't usually think there could be signs of life on them. That's why I, I keep talking about anomalies. Please keep an eye on anomalies because that's where I think we would find more, more interesting discoveries. Anomalous atmospheres. So say you have a Mars-like planet that you're able to observe in another star system. And that Mars-like planet, you have a good, reasonably good idea how old it is. Say it's 4.5 billion years old. And yet it has an atmosphere it shouldn't. It's got a thick atmosphere <laughs> that it shouldn't have been able to hold on to. Have we really started to ponder over those kinds of technosignatures where you, you actually see anomalous planets in and of themselves showing no biosignatures or technosignatures per se, but just very weird circumstances that they shouldn't be in? This is a great question because this is a line of work that several of my colleagues are actually undertaking right now. Because this is related to terraforming kind of uh, technosignatures, right? So if you see two planets in a system that have very similar atmospheres, that is a kind of a suspicious thing because having two planets having very, very similar evolution would raise red flags. It could possibly be natural evolution could have done that, but uh, it is also possible that there's some sort of a terraforming. This is called the terraforming of uh, planets, right? Uh, a natural, it's not natural. It's something else has happened to it. Uh, so yeah, if you have a planet with uh, a dense atmosphere where it shouldn't be having, or you know, having an atmosphere it shouldn't be having, that is certainly a, a suspect planet for a techno signature. Uh, that is one possibility, though. So we have to keep that in mind. I think what would be really interesting is if we saw such a thing, an impossible planet like that. Well, we didn't just see one; we saw a cluster. 
all nearby each other in nearby star systems. And that would bolster the case, right, that you're, you're looking at a spacefaring civilization that's, that's altering planets. Actually, that's uh, quite possible, by the way. And so we have several publications on that. At least uh, we were thinking about it uh, to see what kind of a planets can uh, civilizations could produce these kind of uh, similar kind of techno signatures on adjacent planets. I think that would probably be the most amazing thing because that not only tells you that they exist, but that they're very advanced and that it is possible for us to terraform worlds. Although I guess we already know that we're doing a fairly decent job terraforming this one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, doctor. Um, that's it for today. And thanks for dropping by. And I hope we can have a conversation again in the future as data collection on UAP happens. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Event Horizon and my channel are now available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube memberships. Early ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and sleep-focused content. Sign up now by clicking the links below to your platform of choice. Anna, why is the possum building a huge metal tower in the backyard? He's going into a new technology, John. Yeah, and what technology is that? Shortwave radio. Wait a minute, that's a new technology, shortwave radio? No, but what you don't know is that's how alien civilizations communicate. Yeah, uh, wait a minute, he's handing me a script. He wants me to read something to the aliens. I suggest doing so, John. The stakes may be higher than you think regarding the aliens. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I bid you good evening. Wait a second, this isn't my outro or my intro. <laughs> he finds it ironic and funny. Yeah, all right. Well, let's do it proper. Thanks for listening. I am science fiction author and futurist John Michael Godier, currently getting mocked by an opossum. And be sure to check out my books at your favorite online book retailer and subscribe to my channels for regular in-depth explorations into the interesting, weird, and unknown aspects of this amazing universe in which we live. Did you do that from memory, John? Indeed I did. Who was she? I can't say.